Good morning. Welcome again. If you're uh, new, we want to especially welcome you this morning. <clears throat> We've been in a, a series this uh, summer called The Untouchables, and it has nothing to do with the movie The Untouchables. It's about uh, books in the Old Testament that don't normally get preached on. Um, some of the little more obscure books, and we've been the last few weeks in some of the uh, prophets. And so today we're going to be actually in the book of Amos. Uh, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. And as you're turning there, let me, let me pray again for us as we, as we enter in. Father God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God of justice. We thank you for the gospel. And we ask that your word today would, would do what your word does when the spirit breathes on it. That your word would, would cut where it's necessary, that it would be a sword, but that it would also be a balm that heals. And we thank you that we can trust you, God. And so we ask for Jesus that you would be lifted high in our midst today. Help me to lift up Jesus high. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, well, as, since we're uh, doing Amos today, I thought about uh, having a, a little, a few bags of some famous Amos cookies to just kind of throw out into the crowd periodically, but I forgot to, to do that. Um, so Amos chapter 2 is where we're going to be primarily, then we're going to go to the very end of Amos at the, at the end of the day. But uh, there was a time not, not that long ago, um, probably just a few weeks ago, that our, our daughter, we have a, a daughter, Ellie's three, and uh, she got a, a splinter in her toe. Ellie's not really a believer in shoes, and uh, so she was running around outside like she does, and, and uh, she got a splinter in her toe, and um, it took both my wife, Andy, and me, both of us, to hold her down uh, to, to get the splinter out, to remove it, and um, you know, we, we told her, Ellie, Mommy and Daddy, we have to make you hurt in order to make you feel better. We have to make you hurt in order to make you feel better, to get the splinter out. And that's, in a sense, what, what Amos is, is doing. It's, Amos is really not an easy book to read. It's pretty heavy. Um, talks about judgment a lot. But um, really what he's doing is he is exposing sin, exposing the splinter of sin so that it can be removed for our, for our good, for our healing. Um, the setting... Of, of Amos is it's roughly about 750 plus years before Jesus. And uh, if you were here the last, um, last week, you know, when Gabriel preached on Lamentations, that was when Israel was in a very dark time after, after exile had happened. But Amos is, is actually before that. Um, it's actually before Israel goes into exile. And quite simply, um, the setting here is things are going very well. In, in the nation of Israel, at least on the surface, they're, they're going well, both economically and militarily. Um, there's a guy named Jeroboam, uh, who is the king of Israel. He's actually the second guy named Jeroboam. How many are going to name their kids Jeroboam? Um, he's the second one who's, who's named Jeroboam, and you can read about him in 2 Kings 14, but um, Israel's economy is, is prospering. Under him, by this time, Israel and Judah had split into two nations, but they're not at war with each other. Um, Israel is at peace with her surrounding nations. Uh, international trade is happening, and so the nation really seems to be thriving from, a, from an economic perspective. Uh, the nation is also still very religious. It's kind of just going, thing, things are rolling around, rolling along uh, in a religious sense. Jeroboam 
he, uh, he continued really the, the religious policies, I guess, of the first guy that was named Jeroboam. Uh, who, if you want to read about him, he's in 1 Kings 12. But um, the first guy, Jeroboam, he had basically created almost a state-sponsored religion. Um, he had created separate worship shrines other than the temple, these other worship places where people would go to, and he put in some golden calves for people to worship. He picked his own priests who were not Levites. And, so, and he did these really for political purposes. And so he really had kind of created, created this, this state-sponsored religion. And this is all still going on when the second Jeroboam is king, when Amos is, is writing. And in fact, you've got, it's interesting, you've got religious leaders in Israel at the time uh, people like a guy named Amaziah, who's a priest that we meet in Amos 7, who are so in allegiance with the political leadership of the land that whenever somebody speaks out against the injustice and immorality that's going on, the religious leader protects the, the uh, political leader and says, you know, Amos, things are going well economically, militarily. Just shut up. Be quiet. Things are going well. Now, Amos was, was not really a prophet by trade. He was actually a, a farmer. He, he raised sheep. He grew fig trees. You learn that in Amos 7. He didn't really have academic training for ministry, but God calls him to be a voice, to be a prophet to the nation. But Amos, is a, he's a very gifted communicator. Um, he uses carefully composed arguments to expose the injustice and immorality in the land. He's not just going off on a Facebook rant. Um, but he's using well-structured arguments to make his case. This book also has what I think is one of the most humorous insults that God ever uses. Uh, and if you don't believe me, you can look in Amos 4 where God refers to these wealthy women of Samaria who basically just like to sip lattes and don't care about the poor. He calls them cows of Bashan. I'm not kidding. You can look in Amos 4, 1, and, he, and that's what he says. Now, I haven't done a lot of marital counseling at this point, um, but I am going to go out on a limb and say, guys, if you were in an argument with your wife, probably don't pull that insult out. You cow of Bashan. It's probably not going to go over very well. Just going to say. Um, the theme of, of injustice, justice and injustice, is probably the dominant theme in Amos, though. Um, the people of Israel basically have, have abandoned their covenant with God in spite of still doing religious stuff. And it has led to a lot of immorality and injustice in the land. And quite possibly the most famous verse in Amos is, is this verse, Amos 5.24, that says, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Martin Luther King Jr. used to quote this verse a lot in his speeches and sermons during the civil rights era, um, including his famous I Have a Dream speech. So just a very brief general overview of Amos. Um, in chapter 1 and just a little bit of chapter 2, God actually starts by speaking to the six surrounding nations that are surrounding Israel. These are unbelieving nations that don't know him, but they're, they're doing evil things. And so the, the idea is that God sees the evil and the brutality done by unbelieving nations. Nations, And he still does today. It doesn't go unnoticed by him. And he will bring them to justice. But at this point, Israel's probably in perfect agreement with Amos. I'm like, yeah, you get him, Amos. 
But then God turns his attention in chapter 2 to Judah and to Israel. And from Amos chapter 2, really almost to the very end of the book, is just judgment spoken primarily against the nation of Israel. And uh, then just at the very end, the last four verses, four or five verses of the book, um, there's, a, there's a turn towards hope. And so we're going to be in Amos chapter 2, going to take two lessons really, two points from Amos chapter 2, then at the end going to flip to Amos chapter 9 to finish out. So we're going to be Amos 2 verses 6 through 10 or 11. And uh, he says this, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet, that's a key word. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So, two lessons from this passage in Amos chapter 2. First is this. God cares about both public justice and personal holiness. God cares about both public justice and personal holiness. So let's dive in. He says, for three transgressions or for four. Now, it's not a literal number. The idea is that there is ongoing sin um, that, that is happening. And, and the, the big point, I think, that, that Amos is making is that God is both, he's against both public injustice in society and personal immorality. The crimes that Amos speaks against here are the enslavement of people, the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable, sexual immorality, Shady business dealings that, that exploit needy debtors and idolatry. Now, here's, here's what's kind of interesting. Um, more conservative people, they tend to speak about sin in, in more personal, individual terms. You know, it's, it's his sin or her sin. Um, but people of a more kind of a more liberal persuasion are going to speak about sin in more of a societal sense. It's, it's like the sins of, of a society. But God is against both, Amos is saying. He's condemning public injustice, meaning he's, he's, he's against systems that prey on the weak and the vulnerable. And frequently that's people of lower socioeconomic status. Systems that don't treat them as, as persons, but really dehumanize them. And in, in Old Testament times and kind of more agricultural societies like what Israel was, this would include people like uh, the orphan, the, the widow, the immigrant, people who were, were vulnerable to starvation if there was a war or a, a famine that happened in the land. They were very vulnerable people. In modern day, this would include like the homeless, the refugee, the single mother, the trafficked girl, the child in foster care, 
So God is condemning a society that tramples, to use Amos's word, on these people. And at the same time, God is condemning sexual immorality. He says, a man and his father go into the same girl. Now, that's probably referring to temple prostitution is, is likely what, what, he's, what he's talking about. And the idea is that basically all the guys are doing it, um, father and son. Now, temple prostitution sounds really weird and bizarre to us today, but it was very common in unbelieving societies in the nations surrounding Israel back then, and they had adopted it too. And really doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to think that if you have a worship service where you get to sleep with prostitutes, you can imagine that would be pretty popular among the guys. I'm just saying. Um, but it would not be all that different from internet pornography today, um, which is very, very common in, in our society and is generally accepted as kind of a normal thing. But the, the idea, the, the bigger point that I'm making here is that there's plenty in Amos to challenge those on both sides of the worldview spectrum. Those on the conservative side tend to place a higher emphasis on individual morality, but don't seem to care quite as much about systemic injustice. Whereas those on the more liberal side, I'm speaking in generality here, but they typically are not as concerned with individual morality, especially sexual morality, but are very much concerned with systemic injustice. But neither one escapes the words of Amos. He's saying in the book, God is holy and he is opposed to both personal immorality and public injustice. We tend to dichotomize him and say, well, you got to pick one or the other. What are you going to be against? What are you going to be for? But God doesn't pit one against the other as we're kind of prone to do. But he speaks out against both of them really in the same breath. So biblical righteousness is not just private holiness, although it certainly includes private holiness, but it is also about right relationships, relationships of fairness and equity in a society. There's a, I think, a fascinating connection here also in Amos. Um, God often talks in the Old Testament prophets uh, about idolatry and injustice at the same time, really in the same um, the same passage, often in the same breath. And he does it in Amos too. And so there's this connection in Amos. It's not unique to Amos, but it is in Amos. There's a connection between idolatry and injustice. So here's what I mean. The people of Israel are embracing public kind of systemic injustice. It's just kind of become part of society. Just expect it. It's the norm. And simultaneously embracing idolatry, the worship of, of idols. So the idea is that where there is idolatry, there's probably injustice that's happening. And where you find injustice, it's likely that there's idolatry behind it. And you know what idolatry is. It's where you take something, and it can be a good thing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. You take something, and you make it an ultimate thing, and it becomes your idol that you worship. And we're prone to, to kind of look down at Old Testament Israel and say, well, they're just terrible. But we're prone to do the same kind of things today. It may look a little bit different, but it could look something like this in modern times. It could be that if we idolize our race or ethnicity, well, that could lead to injustice against other races. 
If we idolize our comfort and convenience, that could lead to injustice against those who infringe on our comfort and convenience. If we idolize our nation, that could lead to injustice against those who are not from our nation. And this makes sense biblically because biblically, our connection with God is connected to our connection with people. So if the vertical connection with God is out of whack, that's what idolatry is, it's going to have effects on the horizontal relationships with people in society. So what's the answer to this personal immorality, this idolatry, and this injustice? Well, I think that Amos provides it. It leads to number two. The gospel should lead us to care about justice. God cares about justice, and the gospel should lead us to care about justice. Here's the the reasoning of this passage. It's basically that the people of God should care for the weak and the vulnerable and the needy because that is what God has done for them. Verses 9 through 11, kind of the second half of this passage, are really, when, when God says yet, he kind of he switches. He's talking about what Israel was doing, is doing, then he switches and says yet, and he starts talking about what he has done. So verses 9 through 11 are a recounting of some of the works of the Lord to deliver, deliver Israel from Egypt and to to fight against their enemies and to care for them and provide for them. And notice especially verse 10, where God says, Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So Amos is reminding them of the Exodus. And he does this twice more in the book of Amos. He does it in Amos 3, verse 1. And in 9, verse 7, he brings up the Exodus again. So basically, God is saying, he's saying, don't you remember that I redeemed and rescued you out of Egypt? You were the needy. You were the poor. You were the afflicted. You were the vulnerable. You had nothing to pay to earn my redemption. You were just as bad as the Egyptians. You were worshiping the same gods that they were doing, but out of my grace and out of my mercy, I redeemed you out of that. So you should share the same kind of care for the needy and the vulnerable. God is saying, Israel, how much more should you, rather than the unbelieving nations around you, how much more should you care for the weak and care about justice? And this is not new to Amos, this, is in, this idea is in Exodus, it's in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy. Just one verse from Deuteronomy 10, God says, it says, says about God, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The idea is they were Exodus people. And Exodus people should be known for caring for the vulnerable. And here's where we come in. We too are Exodus people. We, the people of God, the church, we live amongst unbelieving nations, including our own, that don't follow God. And we have experienced an even greater Exodus in the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus, as the greater Moses, he delivers us, he leads us out of slavery to sin and death and the devil. 
God redeems us from slavery to those things, even when we were powerless to help ourselves. And so the gospel should fuel our compassion and our care for justice. The beautiful thing about the gospel is it both cleanses our personal sin and it motivates us to work for public justice. And we have even more motivation as the people of God to care for the weak and to care for justice than than unbelievers do. Now, there's going to be pushback on this. Um, There's there's kind of debates going on among Christians in our country right now. And the pushback is, is kind of this. Well, if you say something like that, aren't you just teaching a social gospel? Now, that, that phrase, that's a historic phrase. You may not know what that means, but basically that means historically the social gospel has denied uh, a lot of the core doctrines of, of Christianity, like sin and, and our need for forgiveness through the cross, through the blood of Jesus. Um, and it, it's basically, it, it's about caring for the poor and the oppressed. But, but I would argue that Amos teaches that followers of God can care about both, and we can hang on to both. We can hold to the core doctrines of, sorry, flipped the head, getting excited. We can hold to the core doctrines of the Christian faith, of sin, and, and that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that we need forgiveness through his blood. Only can we get it through his blood, and be motivated by the same gospel to care about the immediate physical needs of people. Carl F.H. Henry, who was the, he was the founder of, of the magazine Christianity Today. Um, he's since passed, but he wrote a book back in the 1940s, so a long time ago, but very um, insightful into our day and age. And um, kind of speaking about this idea of Christians both holding to the core doctrines of Christianity and caring about fighting injustice in society. And uh, he, I'm just going to paraphrase him because he's kind of wordy, but um, to paraphrase Carl F.H. Henry, he says this basically in that book. He says, we don't preach the social gospel, but we must not forget the social implications of the gospel. The gospel should lead us to care about justice. There's a, a guy who's an, an expert in, in the, kind of the early church. His name's Larry Hurtado, and uh, he kind of... Um, he has this book that's called The Destroyer of the Gods, and it's about what basically made early Christianity stand out in the first and second century, um, what made the church unique and distinctive in Roman society and Roman culture. And uh, he's talking about more from a sociological perspective because I think obviously what mainly made them stand out was their belief about Jesus and that they had the Holy Spirit. Uh, but he lists five things that I think are so fascinating about what what characterized the early church in the first and second century that made them unique in in an unbelieving society. And so here, I'm just going to walk quickly through them. One, they were ethnically diverse. They were ethnically diverse. This was, um, unlike other popular religions of the time, identity was not tied to what religion you were. Typically, it was like, well, if you were from this area of this race, you probably had this religion. Um, Still kind of true today to some extent. But, uh, but the early church welcomed any, anybody, regardless of their ethnicity. Also, they welcomed those from lower social and economic status, people like slaves and women, people that were not really shown a lot of dignity in that society. They elevated them and gave them dignity. 
they, uh, they spoke and worked out against infanticide. In that day and age, there was a, it was a, a brutal practice that if you didn't want a baby that you had, you would take it out into the wilderness and leave it there to die. But guess who would go into the wilderness and rescue those babies and bring them in? It was the Christians. They, so, and they spoke out against that practice too. So they, they fought for, for life of, of the young. They said that sex was only between a man and his wife, and that was seen as very strange in that society, so that's not new today. Um, and then lastly, they did not retaliate to mistreatment. When they were mistreated, they did not return violence. So there you see it. Both a, a care for personal holiness and a care for public justice. And so the early church, they held to the truth of the gospel and they let the gospel shape how they acted in public society. And as Exodus people, we are to care about the same things. I love their, this quote by two guys, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson. They, they say this talking about us as Exodus people. They say, Exodus people know what it is to be ground into the dust by those in power. So whenever we see it happening to others, racial minorities, slaves, trafficked women, the poor, unborn children, refugees, homeless, those with disabilities, sojourners, orphans, widows, we act, we march, we speak, we pray, we invite, we give. We use our power to serve the interests of those without it because the exodus was never just for us. Free people, free people. So good. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church, to be part of fullness. We're, we're doing this kind of stuff. Money that, that you give goes to, to, to work for, to help the poor and the orphan and the trafficked around the world. And we do stuff with people in our own backyard and with Common Thread and others to help the poor um, here with us. But I would encourage you, I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody today, I would encourage you, don't be satisfied with just giving money to somebody else who's fighting justice. But what can you do as a, as a high school student, as a college student, as a single, as a young married couple, as a young family, to, to be involved in this? How can we model this as parents for our children? You know, a lot of times, young people in our society, they, they like to criticize the church um, and say, well, the local church, they don't really care about justice in their community. And they, they probably have a valid point oftentimes, but I don't think the answer is just throwing some more outreach programs on the church calendar. But it's when individuals within our society, within our, within our body, um, within our, our pews, with our staff, when we, in our heart, realize, if I truly am, if I was the afflicted, if I was the weak and the vulnerable, and I didn't pull myself up by my own bootstraps, but God in his mercy, he saved me through the gospel, how am I, how am I acting out of that to, to reach those around me? When people look at my life, do they recognize this gospel, this Exodus gospel, and how I prioritize my life? And Fullness is amazing. I know we've got people doing incredible things here. We've got people that are working in the foster care system. We've got people that have taken in foster kids who are getting ready to take in foster kids who've adopted internationally. We've got people that have helped provide uh, health care for the poor in our state. Um, Jack 
has worked for, to, on legislation for, to fight against trafficking. There's amazing stuff that's happening in this body. And so I encourage you to, to share those stories with each other because that encourages us. But don't think also that you have to do this unbelievably huge thing. It can start with just who's somebody in your neighborhood that could use help, that you can do something small to, to meet their need. So fullness, let's, let's continue to, to listen to the Spirit. I'm not saying don't use wisdom. We don't want to help people in a way that hurts them. So we, we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. But, um, and it's going to look differently for, for all of us. But let's, let's be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit and let the gospel motivate us to care about justice. Amen? And then lastly, final point is this. Our final hope for justice is the true king and his kingdom. Final hope for justice is the true king and his kingdom. Amos is a heavy book. Uh, it's, it's rather depressing, if I'm being honest, to read just chapter after chapter of judgment. But in the last five verses of the book, it's this radical left turn that it takes. And there's this radical shift towards hope in Amos 9, starting in verse 11. And I, I was originally going to kind of preach on 11 through 15, but I'm really just going to focus on 11 and 12. Where Amos says this, this is a prophecy of the Lord. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So God speaks of, of restoring a kingdom that is made up of all nations. And to take a, a jump to the New Testament just for a few minutes, in the book of Acts, the early church, again, um, in Acts chapter 15, there's this really interesting story where what's there's this kind of dispute that's happening among the early Christian leaders who are Jewish Christians. And you have all these Gentiles that are coming in to the church. They're being touched by the gospel and they're coming to faith in Jesus and they're coming into the church. And the Jewish Christians are, they're kind of debating with each other. Like, well, should we make these Gentiles become more Jewish? Should we make them get circumcised and, and do things like that? And they're discussing it and Peter and Paul and Barnabas are all saying things and then James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, he comes forward and he refers to the Old Testament. And he says basically, no, we don't have to make the Gentiles become more Jewish. And guess what passage in the Old Testament he points to? It's Amos 9, 11 and 12. And he doesn't quote it word for word. He kind of rephrases it a little bit, but he says this. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. There it is. There it is. This is, this is so powerful. The idea is that the people of the kingdom of the coming king are to be from all nations. And they're not to be known. They're not going to be known by being of a certain ethnicity or being from a certain nation, but by being identified with the king, with King Jesus. 
And this is powerful for us. The gospel obliterates the idols of, of race or of, of a nation because the kingdom of God is made up of people from all nations and all races. And so we, as the people of God, if we are gonna be gospel-shaped, we really only see the world with one distinction, those who know and follow Jesus and those who don't. And those who know and follow Jesus, whether they be regardless of what race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what nation they're from, we view them as brothers and sisters. And those who don't know and follow Jesus, we don't shun them and just turn away from them. We, we go to them and we share the gospel with them. Going back to Amos now, flipping back to Amos 9. He says, he says, I will raise up the booth of David. The, the language there, what he, what he means is that there is a new king who's like David, but even better than David that's coming. You know, it's interesting. Amos, the book of Amos starts with mention of a king, of a couple of kings, and it ends with a king. And this coming king, who is better than David, is being contrasted with the kings at the beginning of the book. So the point is that our ultimate hope for justice cannot rest on any political leader like Jeroboam. You know, in spite of Jeroboam's political and military success, he's not able to lead the people. He couldn't lead the people into following the Lord. And we, as believers, though we, yes, we get involved with politics, we, we vote, we pray for our leaders, we don't place our hope on a political leader. We need a greater king to rescue us. In T. Wright, he says this. He says, the line between justice and injustice, between things being right and things not being right, can't be drawn between us and them. It runs right down through the middle of each one of us. See, I need a king who will deliver not just from the injustice around me, but from the injustice that resides in my own heart. And so do you, and so do we all. And there's only one king that can do that, and his name is Jesus. He's the only true king of justice because, as Paul says in Romans 3, Romans 3.26, he says that on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, it both allowed God to maintain his justice, his perfect justice, by punishing sin and at the same time to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross allows a just God to be in relationship with an unjust people by declaring them righteous when they place their faith in Jesus. And so Jesus alone is the king who achieves Justice. Amen? All right, if I could um, get Craig uh, to come back up as we get ready to close out. Um, in, in our family, uh, we have a, a three-year-old, I've already spoken of, Ellie is three, and we have a one-year-old, Owen. And uh, Ellie, like pretty much any older sibling, she likes to use her superior size and strength to have her way with her younger brother. 
so she'll, she'll take things from him. She'll push him down. She'll sit on him. Uh, I know those, those of you who are younger siblings, you probably remember those days, right? And those of you who, like me, are older siblings, like, well, they deserved it. Um, but I'm trying to have conversations with Ellie already about this. She doesn't fully understand it yet, but um, I'll say something like this. I'll say, in this family, we don't bully people who can't talk for themselves. <laughs> we defend them because that's what Jesus wants us to do. And that's basically the message of Amos to the church today. He's saying, in this family, we don't condone systems that bully those who are weak and vulnerable and who can't really speak for themselves. We defend them because that's what your God has done for you. We are in relationship with a God who cares about justice. We have been saved through a gospel that should lead us to care about justice. We await the return of a king who will restore perfect justice. And in the meantime, we're part of a kingdom that is already here in part. And as kingdom people, we are to reflect the heart of our Father God in his care for justice in the world. And so we work to meet people's immediate physical needs, to fight against injustice when we see it. And we preach a gospel that alone can meet their spiritual, their eternal spiritual needs. And I believe that when we as the church, when we do both of those things, it's not an either or, it's both, we can make a huge difference for the gospel in our community and in our nation. Amen? All right, um, as Craig's about to, to start singing, I'd like to call a couple of uh, 